0: In 1482, Leonardo da Vinci had a problem. It's a problem that has been around for a long time. His problem was he didn't have a job. Looking for a job, he decided he wanted one working for the head of the city of Milan. After all, the duke who ran the city of Milan had plenty of money. He decided to put together a cover letter and a resume. He started with a Fabulous salutation. My most illustrious lord. And then, in the letter, he outlined some of his skills. His skills include, I have plans for very light, strong, and easily portable bridges. Also, I have means of arriving at a designated spot through mines and secret winding passages constructed completely without noise. I also have types of cannon, most convenient and easily portable, with which to hurl small stones. And if any of the above mentioned things seem impossible or impracticable to anyone, I am most readily disposed to demonstrate them in your park or in whatsoever place shall please your excellency. And then, as an afterthought, he writes, Also, I can execute sculpture in marble, bronze, and clay. Likewise, in painting, I can do everything possible as well as any other, whosoever he may be. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. You should write a book, Hey, It's Seth. Writing a book is a generous act. It focuses the mind. It shares your ideas. It earns you credibility. And publishing a book has never been easier. Last year, a million books got published on the Kindle. But writing a book? Writing a book is still difficult. At akimbo.com, we'd like to help do something about that. We are launching a community of practice. A group of people together for six months, supporting one another, moving forward, making a book. It starts in June. Your book will be on the Kindle by January. Check out the details at Akimbo.com. You should write a book. You can write a book. We'd love to have you join us. We'll see you there. Write a book about it. Everybody to tell a funny story I'm a boss so it comes with the territory write a book about it.: Of course, the history of looking for a job and the history of looking for employees goes way back further than Leonardo da Vinci. Raghav Singh was walking through the British Museum when he found a tablet 2,000 years old, a note from Julius Caesar to his troops. The Romans desperately needed more soldiers, and so he offered his existing soldiers one-third of a year's pay for every soldier they recruited. What's been going on for thousands of years? is a dance between people who need a job and people who need employees. And that dance has been remarkably stable for a very long time, except for now. Now it is changing. It has changed more in the last 10 years than it has changed in a thousand, and it will continue to change ever faster. How to get a job, why to get a job, where to get a job, will never be the same again. (laughs) I wanna argue that there are at least five things that have fundamentally changed about jobs. The first one is portability. It used to be that the standard in American industrial settings was that you got a job right out of school and you kept that job until you retired. Seniority kept you in the job. Experience made you worth more over time. Switching costs were very high. Employers didn't like the idea that someone would last two or three years and then move on to the next job. And employees, because they were tied down geographically and by benefits, didn't want to switch either. Well, we all know that has changed for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them, one of the reasons that underlie so many of these, is the death of industrialism. Industrialism, which led to a huge rise in good jobs, and steady employment, is the act of telling other people what to do, managing for results, and getting what you expect. If we are living in an industrial culture, we need you to behave the way they taught you to behave when you were in school, to follow instructions, to do well on the test, to be willing to be reprocessed if you make a mistake, that the very nature of large organizations filled with lots of people doing the same thing over and over again, enabled us to become significantly more productive. But it had a cost, and the cost was fitting in and fitting in for a long time. This has shifted. If you are listening to this, it is likely that you have a job where you don't do the same thing every single day, where you are rewarded not for following instructions, but for making them up. Okay, the second idea is the idea that now we can show our work, that we can have a legacy, that a resume is not nearly as important as a body of work. A resume shows that you know how to fit in, to create a machine-scannable document that can look for keywords, that you can consistently show up for work and do what you are told year after year, maybe with a couple companies along the way. A resume is proof of compliance. But a body of work, a body of work that shows that you know how to organize, that you know how to lead, that you have shipped things that have mattered to people, that is your legacy. It is what you are leaving behind. And so if we think about something as simple as the references and testimonials for people on LinkedIn, what we are beginning to see is something that is living and connected far more than a resume ever could be. Small aside about LinkedIn, I'm told that 70% of their revenue comes from recruiters paying LinkedIn for the privilege of seeing the people who rise to the top based on their legacy, based on their body of work. The next shift is the rise of data, different kinds of data, the data of Moneyball, of Sabermetrics, of realizing that if we use statistics, we can figure out who's the best baseball player, who's the most productive manager, which region is outperforming, which fast food franchise is doing better than the other one. We also can now measure the productivity of a single human, keystroke by keystroke, interaction by interaction. If you call a customer service number, you can bet that your call is not being monitored for quality. It's being monitored for productivity. That what's going on is that anybody who has one of those automaton jobs where they have to answer the incoming, whether it's by phone or on email or on intercom, they're being measured. They're being measured and their productivity is part of their data record. What people get paid is also now being widely shared. And so shared spreadsheets are created, showing people how much the others in their industry make. It used to be a secret. Employers wanted it to be a secret. But as the information is shared, suddenly, if you're getting paid below average, you really want to get paid more than average, particularly if your performance as measured by common performance metrics, is exceptional. But if you end up getting paid more than average, you can bet the average is going to go up. And so a ratchet occurs any place where there is a scarcity of talent, which leads to the next idea, the idea of outsourcing. Maybe there's no job at all. Companies, big and small, no longer have people doing jobs that are done by an outsourced service instead. It used to be obvious that a company did its own payroll. My company has never done its own payroll. It used to be that you wanted to vertically integrate, that if you wanted to be, for example, in the magazine business, you owned a printing plant. Now it would be insane to start a magazine with its own printing plant. Someone else will do it for you. And so, as jobs can be outsourced, we will outsource them if the numbers indicate that there's no advantage to having that person in-house, which means that if you're going to get an in-house job, you're probably going to get a job, if it's a good one, because you are making decisions in the short run, you are not simply following a manual. And then the fifth idea is the idea of slack, which is, You don't have to be in the room. That remote employment is growing. It is growing because it is more efficient and less expensive. More talent is available. Things happen faster. And it is possible to create a work environment that doesn't involve people being in the same room with each other. And then going back full circle and this idea of talent. Let's call it, I don't know, The Da Vinci Code. It ended up that the Duke did hire Leonardo Da Vinci for his little afterthought. The Duke put him in charge of a painting, which was then called The Last Supper. Leonardo Da Vinci was undeniably skilled. He was able to create something that few others could create. And so, the shift in the way jobs are working is pretty profound. Companies have realized that there are only two kinds of employees, replaceable cog-like employees that they should hire as fast and as inexpensively as they can. If you go to a big box store, you can apply for a job using a machine that looks like an ATM, and no one will even meet you. If you apply for a fancy job at Disney or Netflix or someplace else, your resume is going to get read by a machine long before it gets seen by a person bring them in, churn them out. And then the other kind of job? The other kind of job is a linchpin job. It is a job for a special person in a special situation doing special work, work that is hard to describe, work that has a huge return on investment if someone does it with fantastic skill and effort. But it's important to note that these jobs, at least outside of the NBA, are not based on your genes or your inherent talent. They are based on your attitude and your skill. And skill is something that you can learn. And skill is something that you can display. Maybe you could display it with a little bit less hubris than Leonardo da Vinci. But the idea is the same. That what we have is the chance to create on purpose a body of work. Whether we do it at our job or not doesn't matter. We can organize a conference. We can write the industry newsletter. We can speak up. We can produce a portfolio. We can gather dozens of testimonials about us and our work. Over time, people will come looking for us instead of us having to figure out who the next Duke of Sforza was. That over time, if you are the singular one, the one who chooses to stand out, then you will stand out and when you stand out, not all employers will like that. And as I've talked about before, the other thing about talent is we often confuse talent with skill because skill can be learned and skill is an opportunity. And too often when we say we're going looking for talent, what we're actually looking for are people who look like the people who we think have talent. And in this new economy, that's foolish. It's foolish for a few reasons. First, we're overlooking people who have been overlooked, people who might be a bargain, people who might be available, people who are passionate but who haven't necessarily come up in the same way, who don't look the same way, who don't act in a way that we associate with a certain pedigree. And second, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, the idea of diversity of thought, of background, of approach These connections help us create an organization that actually does better work. Nobody wants to hear the all-clarinet orchestra. In fact, there is no all-clarinet orchestra. It's only when we mix together different instruments that we create something that's worth seeking out. So when we add all of these pieces together, what we discover is that there's a huge opportunity to go seeking skill, to go seeking people with a point of view and a sense of possibility because we don't have to rely on the old, tired labels that we used to call talent. So what do all these changes mean for employers? Well, if there's actually a war for talent, if there really is a competition to find a 10x employee, someone who will make things better, then you better be prepared to engage in that war. How to do that? Well, first, Isolate the jobs where it matters and get rid of the jobs where it doesn't. If you can figure out which jobs are cog jobs, which can be done by a service where you can buy the output instead of buying someone's time, then go buy the output, leaving yourself with a smaller group of people who have your trust, who have the leverage to actually change things. Because it doesn't make any sense to get into a bidding war for someone great and then give them so many rules that they can't be great. Next, we have the opportunity now, pretty much for the first time, to work with people before we hire them. Then one of the positive side effects of the gig economy for both employers and employees is that you can try before you buy. You can do a project with someone. Because the problem with a job interview is you are trying to figure out if someone's good at being in a job interview. But unless your job actually involves being in job interviews, being good at it is hardly worth measuring. Instead, you can give people actual work to do, and they can do that work for pay, and you can figure out if when they do that work for pay, you want them to do more of it. Third, employers can work much harder at creating experiences at work that are worth talking about. Creating not just benefits that make you show up on one list or another, but actual mutually respectful experiences that transform what it even means to be at work. Because if all work is doing is buying your hours, then the smart employee should sell those hours to the highest bidder if it's all the same. But if work, if work is a place where we're going to spend half our lives, if work is about meaning, if work is about connection and growth, then building an organization where that sort of thing is valued and expected, well, then the word will spread. And then people who have a choice will choose you. If your company's motto is, you can work anywhere and wear anywhere, well, then don't expect people to go out of their way. To work for you. On the other hand, if you take the position that skill is what you have and skill is what you sell and skill is what you are able to grow and create, well, then the marketplace will pay you for that thing that you are actually building. All a way of saying if you're in the commodity business, you're doomed. If you do a job that can be done by a computer, a computer is going to do that job. For us to thrive, As organizations in the future, we have to become the sort of organization that employees of the future want to work for and that customers of the future want to buy from. Not because we're in a race to the bottom, but because we're in a race to the top. Even though some people say the 10x programmer is a myth, she's not. The 10x employee, the one who can change the game, who can add a zero, who can inspire, who can solve interesting problems, these employees, some companies are looking for them. And if that's who you want to become, then become that employee. Demonstrate that body of work. And then maybe one day soon, someone will ask you to paint your last supper. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in a second with answers to two questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Regular listeners know that I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or a previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Hey, Seth, this is Andrew from Kansas. I recently listened to your Irrational Behavior podcast, and I was curious, if I have a book that's similar now to the books you wrote in the past that were not successful, do we have the opportunity to go ahead and deliver those to our customers, knowing the power of 100 rabid fans and the credibility it gives us initially as a catapult to increase momentum towards our brand and our credibility for the future. Just curious if you would do that today, or if you still have to run through a few hoops that you basically mentioned last time. Thank you. Indeed, the medium and the message are inextricably linked. That it doesn't matter whether someone had an idea for a book or a project or anything in one medium and it didn't work. And you're about to bring it out in a different form. So this idea of a thousand true fans, as Kevin Kelly calls them, says that if there are people who are waiting in line to do what you do next, a thousand of them is more than enough. That doesn't work in the book publishing industry of 1990. A 1,000? That doesn't even get them out the door. It doesn't get them out of bed in the morning. They needed 10,000, 100,000, a million on offer before they got really excited. And that brings back this idea of the smallest viable audience. The smallest viable audience, the people you are serving, could just be people who are irrational the way you are irrational. And that is what is happening. That the idea of the mass market is being replaced by a million micromarkets by assemblies of people, groups of people, who want and believe the same thing. That couldn't work in a bookstore that only had 30,000 titles in it. But it has to work in the world of the long tail. Hi, Seth. This is Tom from Boston. Got a quick question for you. Um, For people who think they're built to do more and want to have a bigger impact, um, but don't know what change in the world they want to create, how would you go about figuring that out for yourself? I know it sounds like a first world problem, but it's, you know, it's really my one shot at life. And what do I want to do? And how do I want to leave a legacy and impact the world? So any thoughts you had on that would be really appreciated. Thank you for this question, particularly in a world that is in such turmoil, with such tragedy, with such pain. This idea that we can make things better, it is more urgent than ever before. But we must not wait for perfect We must not wait for our calling. If we have a hunch that we can contribute more, that's because we can. That's because all of us can. And if we are looking for the perfect thing to contribute, we will always be looking. Because it's not on a single metric, and there are lots of different ways to contribute. So my answer is simple. You don't do the work because you find your passion. You find the passion because you do the work. If you find someone who's passionate about what they do, And there are passionate race car drivers and passionate plumbers and passionate house painters. It's not because they were born with that wired into them. It's because they did the work and they liked the way it made them feel to do the work. So don't hold back, don't stall, don't hide. Find someone who needs to be connected with, someone who needs your help, someone who needs a light turned on. Do that work and then do it again. As we learn the systems of our culture, we can get smart about whether the system, the medium, the process can work to help us achieve our goal. But once you pick your spot, you don't have to pick the perfect spot. You just have to pick a spot that's worth starting with. And then, as you do the work, you will find your passion. Thanks again for listening. Here's to hope and peace of mind and good health for everyone. Be well.
1: I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you are gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up, and that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
0: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.